Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'd like to welcome you to Compliance Into the Weeds, a podcast where, with Matt Kelly, the coolest guy in compliance, founder and editor of Radical Compliance, we take a deep dive into the weeds of a compliance or compliance-related topic. Before I get to this week's topic, uh, as you know, <clears throat> the Compliance Podcast Network is always on the lookout for new podcasts. Have you ever wanted to start a podcast but didn't know how? Well, if you've thought about it, please take a listen to this week's sponsor, One Stone Creative. If you are enjoying this show, you might enjoy hosting your own. As an expert in your field, you have skills, knowledge, and insight that can help you expand your practice, meet new people, and create amazing content to share with the world. In as little as two hours a week, you can dramatically change how you promote, fill, and position your business, and One Stone Creative can show you how. Learn more at onestonecreative.net. In today's episode, Matt and I take a look at the issue of regulatory capture in the context of the disaster, uh, air disaster around the Boeing 737 MAX plane that crashed in Ethiopia. We consider regulatory capture and what it might mean for U.S. leadership in the aviation industry. We take a look at the process by which the plane was approved by the FAA, how the Boeing CEO called President Trump and asked him not to ground the Boeing fleet in the face of worldwide grounding of the Boeing fleet, how the Ethiopian government uh, did not trust the United States to interpret the black box, rather sending it to France, how the U.S. has lost leadership in a world leadership in aviation safety, and what are the lessons for the compliance practitioner? Compliance into the weeds is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, the Compliance Evangelist, back with Matt Kelly, the coolest guy in compliance, for yet another episode of Compliance into the Weeds, the podcast where we take a deep dive, literally going into the compliance weeds. Uh, Matt and I are going to take up an interesting aspect or two of the Boeing imbroglio around the 737 MAX and the crash in Ethiopia and what it may tell us. So, Matt, with that uh, introduction, first of all, welcome. Hello, Tom. Always good to be here. So, Matt, uh, you were telling me in our green room, our virtual green room, I should say, about a a very interesting Seattle Times article uh, on uh, the approval process for Boeing to get the 737 MAX through the FAA approval. You want to start there? Yeah, I definitely would recommend this article to any compliance or regulatory affairs officer who is interested in the nuances of where do these regulatory standards come from and how do we navigate them as compliance or VPs of regulatory affairs like professionals. So this is an article that was posted on the seattletimes.com website today, written by Dominic Gates, and it is the lead story in the Seattle Times. So it's not very easy to miss. It's right there, right at the top. Uh, Basically, uh, Dominic Gates, I guess he is the aerospace reporter out in Seattle where Boeing's operations are. He found that FAA uh, employees, safety engineers, had delegated the safety certification of the 737 MAX jet back to Boeing engineers. Um, And we can go on from there. But basically, this is, I think, a story of regulatory capture that raises a lot of really probably troubling points. Um, So I'll give the quick rundown of what the article contains. The system that has is believed to have failed for both the Lion Air crash back in uh, October and then the Ethiopian Airlines crash that happened on March 10th. The system is formally known as the 
uh, MCAS system, Maneuvering Characteristics Augmentation System. Don't ask me exactly what it does, except that that is the system that allegedly helps to keep the plane from stalling. Uh, but it was depending on one sensor, which it looks like if that sensor was giving you bad data, you were unable as the pilot to override it, at least in these two instances. That seems to be the working theory. Um, but back in 2015, FAA managers were pushing FAA safety engineers who normally would have done the safety certification and inspection of the MAX jet. The managers were telling the FAA safety and engineers, let Boeing do it. And not only did Boeing uh, essentially get to perform the, its own safety testing on its own jet, but Boeing was allowed to develop what I guess is formally known as the system safety analysis for the MAX 37 control system. So uh, not only did the FAA let Boeing perform its own safety certification, it let Boeing engineers devise the test that would be used to certify the safety of the plane. And then that system safety analysis document, the FAA has since shared that with other air aviation authorities around the world. But my contention would be like, let's think about this people. Uh, a business cannot objectively uh, perform, assess its own safety testing. It can't draw up its own test and then certify that it has passed the test for regulators. So this is inherently a conflict of interest. Um, doesn't matter if Boeing did or did not act in the best of intentions. I suspect probably many engineers at Boeing did, and I expect many of them are horrified that this situation has happened. However, we still have this perception that there is regulatory capture, there's conflict of interest. We do have two airplane crashes that we have to figure out somehow. Um, and it looks like we, the taxpayers of the United States, were not interested in funding the FAA to the capacity where it could perform its own duties and set its own safety standards and then go out and certify these planes to those standards. It let all of that go back to Boeing. And it is another example of regulatory capture. We can talk about how that shows up here and there in other ways, but that looks to be what it is. And if you are an air traveler, and I know all the compliance professionals out there, I know we all are, you're probably very interested, by all means, read this Seattle Times story and you know, dig into what the FAA had been doing here with Boeing to get this plane in the air. So there's a couple of uh, things that uh, came up for me around this uh, matter, uh, Matt. The first one is uh, more directly related to compliance and the compliance practitioner. And the second one really is the U.S.'s position around uh, being a world leader in aviation and aviation safety. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think they're tied to your point as well. But I'd like to point to an article by Jeff Wise and the online publication Slate entitled Where Did Boeing Go Wrong? And he went back and took a look at the design of the or rather the upgrade of the 737. And in the context of Boeing's competition with Airbus and that uh with the Airbus A320 family and later generations, uh, Airbus was able to take this sort of mid-level, mid-short uh, uh, to mid-range uh, narrow-body narrow jet market away from Boeing. And Boeing's response was to take a plane that was designed in 1967 
and update it. Uh, they could have made the decision to uh, come up with a, a new design from scratch, but they decided not to do that, and they were going to upgrade the uh, existing th uh, 737. And so when you have that kind of decision, from the compliance perspective, what are the implications of that? Now, you talked about, I thought in great detail, the regulatory issues and how if you're going to upgrade an old plane, uh, regula the regulatory approval is so critical. But within the, the context of the compliance practitioner or the compliance professional, how much do you know about how your company is developing products? Uh, would that even be something that's on your radar? Would you be able to raise compliance concerns? Would you be able to raise oversight concerns? And as you talked about the, the testing protocol for certification, would the compliance practitioner say, no, we, we really need an independent uh, to do this? Um, or, or is that something that's going to be completely outside your remit because you're only worried about sales to, to foreign governments um, as well. So um, I found that really interesting. A road taken by Boeing many years ago uh, sort of led to this, or at least uh, in, the, in the opinion of Jeff Wise contributed to this. But the larger point, Matt, and this is what really concerns me even more, is that uh, I think we had a, a pretty well-publicized phone call from Boeing um, a couple of days after the accident directly to President Trump, where the uh, CEO of Boeing um, basically uh, pleaded his case that the Boeing fleet not be grounded. This was in the face at that time of the phone call of every major country in the world had grounded, <clears throat> excuse me, the uh, 737 MAX, not every 737 and not the prior models, only this new model. Uh, later that day, the only company country that had not grounded its fleet was Canada. Later that day, Canada did. <clears throat> so you had a call from a major donor to President Trump uh, basically pleading his case not to have the fleet grounded, and the president agree, agreeing with him. Uh, you know, the safety of U.S. flying public be damned. And uh, it really uh, drove home how a direct intervention by a campaign donor could negatively impact um, the safety concerns of an agency like the FAA. Now, yeah. if I could overlay with the following, that the uh, there's really two countries in the world that are viewed as the top black box readers. Uh, and one of them is the United States, uh, but the other is France. And Ethiopia uh, made the decision they did not want to send the black box to America for reading or interpretation because they were concerned that the FAA would either find it was pilot error or otherwise have a conflict of interest. And I thought that was the perhaps the most damning thing that I saw in all of this, other than the horrific loss of life, was that the United States has literally lost the world's leadership in aviation safety when a country like Ethiopia won't even send its black box to the United States, but sends it to France. And uh, I think that ties back to, to your point about regulatory capture, that the, the process has become so entwined and so conflicted in the United States that other countries don't trust us around this issue anymore. Well, you know, I'll, I'll start with uh, Boeing's CEO calling directly to President Trump, uh, which I think is probably the ultimate regulatory capture because essentially Boeing's CEO was trying to short circuit the whole 
regulatory system that we have for civil aviation in the United States. Um, doesn't necessarily matter if people are overreacting to fears about the 737 MAX. I mean, I can tell you, I wouldn't want to fly on it because, you know, sure, it's only one in a zillion chance, but one chance in a plane crash is really all you need to ruin your life. So I would prefer to avoid it at all. Um, but, you know, there are whole apparatus to oversee uh, aviation safety and, uh, you know, documentation and compliance uh, procedures that Boeing's CEO tried to short circuit all of it by going to President Trump, who is in no position to opine on aviation safety whatsoever. And he does seem to have a certain naivete in trusting other people who may or may not have sincere interests of the public and heart. And I think you see that in his foreign policy dealings. I think you see that in his domestic policy dealings too. Um, but if you're the head of the FAA, which by the way, at the moment, we don't have one and we have not had one for 14 months. I'll get back to that in a moment. But if you are the head of the transportation department, or the FAA, and you see Donald Trump t tweeting um, on Twitter, or you get a phone call from him or something to that effect, where he's saying, keep the plane in the air, that's a lot of pressure for you to keep the plane in the air rather than do your objective duty of assessing the safety and security risks of civil aviation. That's a big problem, and uh, people should worry about that quite a bit. The other point that I want to make about regulatory capture uh, is that I think the regulatory capture idea that the regulators are enthralled to industry executives because they are smarter at these things, they have more resources, they are better paid, and the cynical perception of the revolving door that people go from private sector to public service as a regulator, then go right back to the private sector uh, with their ex-colleagues on both sides uh, You know, as they go back and forth. These things are too very interrelated problems. I mean, they're separate threads, but they're closely intertwined that, um, you know, frankly, we are not paying really anybody in the executive branch and the administrative agencies what they should deserve to do a competent job and to be able to do it effectively. Um, so right now we have no FAA director for the last 14 months. We have the head of the transportation department, which oversees the FAA nominally. That is Elaine Chow, who is the wife of the Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, who is really the only man who keeps Donald Trump in office. If Democrats and disaffected Republicans did want to impeach Donald Trump and Mitch McConnell went along with it, we would impeach Donald Trump next week. Mitch McConnell is the man who is keeping Donald Trump in power, and Mitch McConnell's wife is on Donald Trump's payroll as transportation secretary. Uh, and then meanwhile, we have the acting defense secretary, uh, Mr. Shanahan. I don't forget. I don't recall his first name, but he is a former executive of Boeing who had been there for 30 years. And now he is uh, he was the deputy defense secretary and now the acting defense secretary. Uh, he had been 30 years at Boeing on the military defense contracting side, not civil aviation, but nonetheless, he was on Boeing's executive committee and he'd been there for 30 years. So we have this incestuous back and forth that simply looks bad, even if it is all above board. 
And I don't know that it is. I think that they probably, the parties involved like to think they're above board and probably don't know that they may or not be as on board, above board as they like to think. Uh, it still looks bad to many people. So I am not at all surprised that Ethiopia would prefer to send its black box to France rather than the United States. Um, but the other thing that came to mind as I was reading the Seattle Times article and listening to news reports about it, and anytime you have news reports about a news report, that means the original report is big news. That's why the Seattle Times article is worth reading. Um, I also thought, actually, of Jesse Eisinger's book that, Tom, you and I have talked about, The Chicken Shit Club, uh, which looked more at the Justice Department and its failure to hold uh, anybody really accountable for the financial crisis and other forms of corporate misconduct because far too often, or you know, I won't say too often, but very frequently, the Justice Department backsources an investigation to the company under investigation. And you have to conduct your own investigation, and then you supply that to the Justice Department. Conceptually, it is not much different than what the FAA did with Boeing and its 737 MAX engines and its control systems, basically backsourcing the safety investigation and certification of the aircraft back to Boeing, saying, you guys tell us that this is going to pass standards. You guys give us the information we need. That's what the Justice Department does with internal investigations all the time. That's what half the people listening to our podcast, that's what you do, is you handle all of this. Why do you handle it? Because the Justice Department does not have the money or the manpower to do all this itself. And if it did, then, of course, the theory being maybe it would result in more criminal prosecutions. Maybe not. You could talk to Jesse Eisinger about that all day long. But, you know, we are uh, shortchanging our administrative agencies. So for lack of any other way to do anything at all, they give enormous power right back to the subjects of investigation. doesn't have to be criminal investigation. Sometimes it is. It can be just a safety inspection investigation, which was the case with Boeing. And this is not a Democrat or a Republican problem. This is a both parties problem because it started in 2015 under the Obama administration with the FAA. It has continued into the Trump administration. Um, and here we are. This is a perpetual problem with uh, administrative oversight of private industry as we hobble ourselves and we let private industry do more of it than perhaps it should. And Matt, I probably should have brought this up uh, after your initial remarks, but the Department of Justice has opened a criminal investigation into the uh, approval process for the 737 MAX uh, and has issued subpoenas to uh, at least uh, one uh, Boeing uh, official who was involved in the uh, matter and um, was all issued after the uh, Ethiopian crash. Yeah. Uh, first off, Tom, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I can't recall the last time the Justice Department opened a criminal investigation into something like this that clearly they're going to wind up looking at FAA documents, too. I mean, the FAA is going to get sucked into a criminal probe over how it approved a commercial airline. I mean, I, I'm astonished that we're here, that we're uttering these words, but here we are. Um, and it really is just a statement on how, I don't want to necessarily say lack the lazical, but how much you know, government on the cheap has brought us to this place uh, where we've lost an ability to objectively assess risks and then decide what to do from there. Um, we being, I guess, the public, 
as manifested or channeled through the U.S. government. We don't have those resources, so we give it to the private sector where inherently there is going to be a conflict of interest to do this. doesn't matter that we have the best of intentions. When you're conflicted, it's still a conflict, even when you're trying to be good. That's that's the fundamental issue in my book. So, Matt, I'm going to ask you in a minute uh, if you could give one or two compliance takeaways um, but I'm going to start with uh, the one that struck me really with your opening remarks, but it's certainly been a theme throughout this podcast for me, which is that compliance needs to have a seat at the table and that they need to underst- understand their business. It's not just about selling a product or a service. It's about manufacturing that product and service. And while you may defer to safety professionals or operational professionals or design professionals, a compliance practitioner needs to understand uh, what's coming up uh, to be sold, and they need to understand where the government touch points are, both internal and external, um, not necessarily for bribery and corruption, but to make sure that the internal processes are followed. So there are there any kind of key takeaways or themes that you see for the compliance professional as well? Well, I have a couple of takeaways for a couple of different people who are should be sitting at the table near each other. Uh, you mentioned earlier, Tom, you know, kind of offhandedly that we often say compliance, but really many, many ethics and compliance officers are more worried about anti-corruption issues and training and speak up culture. Yes, it is also correct to think about these other issues that are, you know, this is not an anti-corruption foreign bribery problem, but this has many of the same contours of problem that you might encounter, like are people speaking up when they see problems? Doesn't necessarily have to be a foreign bribery problem, but if you have a culture of speaking up about any sort of a problem, ideally people will be more likely to speak up about all sorts of problems, and that is good. Uh, and Tom, you and I have talked before about how companies, and this has now been documented in academic research, if you are, if you have stronger cultures of internal reporting you are a more profitable and efficiently profitable company. I think it's common sense because people are more willing to talk about issues. And you know, just because it's an anti-bribery issue or a commercial safety issue or whatnot, like, dude, who cares? You got to work on the culture to make sure people are comfortable speaking up. The other point that I would raise is more for the audit executives who might also be listening or who might be sitting next to you at the table if you were a compliance officer and you're your buddy buddies with your audit executive at your company, which of course you should be. Um, but Protivity, not long ago, they had published a new survey of uh, corporate executives, board directors, big enterprise risks that the big guys, the brass are worried about for 2019. And one of the top 10 risks and a severe risk that corporate leaders worry about a lot is that their corporate culture is not one that escalates risks in a timely or useful manner. Now, you can interpret that very broadly. Maybe um, your reporting channels aren't fit for the risks that are really worrying the company now. Maybe they're outdated. Uh, maybe you don't have those channels. Maybe you do have those channels, but you're setting a poor tone at the top where people don't want to use the channels because they think they'll get fired. Uh, there's all sorts of reasons about that. But audit executives, too, could think about what is our weakness around escalation risk? And do we have an escalation-driven culture that 
can when people see an issue, they're not afraid to speak up about it. And there's some way to get that speak up, that spoken up word to the right people higher up the organization, because maybe there isn't. Um, but audit executives could think about that as well. And like compliance officers want the culture and audit executives are worried about a process to make sure that culture is harnessed in the right way. You know, you guys should be working hand in glove on issues like this. All of that said, we do have to think about these bigger issues that are above the pay grade of a lot of audit and compliance officers about regulatory capture and a dysfunctional administrative state. I'm sure the Fox News people will have a field day with me using that term, but there is an administrative state. Its job is to administer a very complex economy. And if we're shortchanging it and kneecapping it uh, where it is unable to do its job, so it outsources it to others who have a conflict of interest, uh, and meanwhile, there are CEOs who are short-circuiting all of it by going to the president and putting ideas into his head that then you know rattle around until they spill out on Twitter. Like I don't necessarily know that that is going to help us at all with the product, the efforts that we're trying to get at for a better organization. You know, we do need to think about this. Um, it is a sad statement that the top prosecutors in the Justice Department, if they're lucky, are making about 165 grand a year which is what a first year law so student or law school law firm associate makes at a big coast east coast firm um, it's ridiculous that we have to think about these issues but these issues do matter and we're ignoring them right now and i don't know what the answer to that is about making the administrative agencies more competent and able to do their jobs but ultimately that's seems to be a big issue here with the boeing problems well, Matt, this has been a fascinating exploration of a case that uh, we will probably take a deeper dive into on later podcasts. All right. Thank you, Tom. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Compliance Into the Weeds. If you have any questions, you can email Matt at mkelly at radicalcompliance.com. You can email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. I hope you'll join Matt and I again next week where we take a look at a compliance or compliance-related topic and take a deep dive, literally going into the weeds, to explore this topic. Compliance Into the Weeds is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. Thank <laughs> you.